Welcome to ANC. My name is Jason. If you've only been here for two minutes or for, you know, however long, which some of you have literally been here that long, um, I'm one of the other pastors and I just got back, my family and I just got back from two weeks vacation in Mexico. Um, you just need to know this is my dream church and you cut me loose in here and I'm so excited to be back. We have seen and traveled and done and tasted because when you travel to Mexico, that's really the thing, right? And it is just really good to be home. Um, we were talking about this last Tuesday morning at our elder meeting. This is an odd season for ANC because this is the dog days of summer and yet there's stuff going on. Like, look around you. Count the empty seats. Those are usually way more empty this time of year. In fact, we were, we were putting our heads together. It, it feels like there's growth and momentum in almost every sector of ANC right now in the dead dog days of summer. So if you're new to Texas, that doesn't happen. That's not how things roll. Everything slows down to like the heartbeat of a hibernating bear. And September, we're all praying for September, that it comes back to life in September. We've been doing this for almost 10 years now. Um, but something is up. Let me just give you an example. Last Sunday, um, we had a round of Restore Weekends. Every time there's a fifth Sunday in, uh, in the calendar month, which is about four times a year, we cancel church and we go out and we serve. And I think we had six, if not seven, independent projects this time around. And all of them were amazing successes. Um, actually, there, we're going to... We're going to have to consider giving out an award. We have one, one guy, David Nasworth, who went to four different projects last weekend. I don't know how he did it. David doesn't even have a car. I'm just telling you, when you want it, you go get it. He was everywhere. It was amazing. Um, and actually, Travis Stiegel came in close second with three. Travis, wave your hand back there. This is the guy who shows up to a kickball game at the settlement home, doesn't tell us he plays in a league. That's, that's a party foul, dog. I'm telling you, you can't do that. You can't show up and, anyway, they were all huge successes. Um, that isn't always the case. Sometimes our Restore Weekends, it's part of who we are, but sometimes we're struggling to get two projects off the ground, and it just feels like, you know, you're, you're looking at kind of a, a big sail in the wind, and there's nothing behind it, but that's the imagery that I'm feeling right now. There just seems to be a wind at our back, and so it's kind of surfacing in all these interesting areas in church. But really, thank you, Fickles, thank you, Shay, thank you, Allison, thank you, Trey, for pulling all those projects together. That's the most beautiful expression of who we are. People say, how can I get to know ANC? Come for a fifth Sunday and just get dirty. It was so hot. Y'all should have been playing kickball with us in 103. I'm not sure that's actually safe. Anyway, we wrapped it up with some steaming hot pizza because everybody wants pizza on a hot day. But it was a breakthrough. I've been finally invited at this place, the, the project that I led, it was, it was really funny. It was an interesting conversation. She's like, so you guys come here and you paint and you fix things up and you remodel and now you play kick, kickball. Like, would you ever consider dot, dot, dot? And she dropped the very ideas that I've been hoping and praying for years they would invite us to do. So this is a, at the settlement home, it's a population of, of struggling, struggling teenagers. And they're in a group home because every other alternative has failed. So these are, these are struggling kids. She's like, would you ever consider... Like, I don't know, maybe picking up a couple of van loads and maybe taking them to church and, and, and I'm like, and, and out to lunch before we bring them home and maybe catch a movie. And she's like, oh my God, you have no idea. I'm like, I've been waiting for two and a half years for you to say that. So there's just interesting things going on. Things are breaking through. Which means actually something really interesting that kind of comes from a conversation I had this week with someone who's new. If you're new here, and everyone knows the awkwardness of being the new person where everybody's, you know, got all this connection, Right? This is ground level in a very concrete way. So if you're new, don't sweat the fact that people, well, I don't want to, 
you know, be part of a group because people have known each other forever. Let me tell you, this is all new. This all feels new. So ground level, welcome to ground level. The newness is kind of in the air. I have no idea where we're going to be in the fall. But if here's where we are in August, I'm telling you, hang on for the ride. Which brings me to another interesting segue. Let me give you an update on something really exciting that's happening for us in the future. Um, We've been pursuing a strategic partnership here in town with a group of people who would nicely accommodate the kind of church that we are. In fact, it would be a mutually beneficial thing as we see it. Um, And we've been working this, right? We've always had a heart for the city. In fact, in Austin, you know, we talk about where we live by the last two digits of our zip code. Like, I don't think any other town does that, but like, oh, you're in the 04? Well, I'm just to the west in the 49. Well, I'm south in the, in the 48. We're in the 610 in Buda. We don't talk about the three digits. It's kind of lame. <laughs> we have nice schools, but we don't talk about our zip code. But we've been, we've been dreaming, I think that's safe to say, about a way to match our geography with our, who, who, who we're becoming, right? And if, if you understand how Austin works, the arrows for us are pushing up into the 04. In the 04, you've got prohibitively expensive real estate. Nobody can set up and do anything up there unless you've been there for 100 years or unless it's four of you in a coffee shop. And it's, it's kind of the holy grail as we've been looking at it. And so there's no way for us to do that by a 30-year mortgage. I mean, that would take 10 million bucks, right? We're not the kind of people who are ever going to build some big church and expect your kids to pay it off because that's really the exchange. You know, capital campaigns, explain them to your four-year-old because they're still going to be paying on that note, right? That's just, not, that's just not who we are. And so an interesting thing popped on the radar not long ago for us, and it's, it would be a strategic partnership. So the United Methodist Church uh, is a church that has made ample space for tension for decades, um, and they, uh, the tribe in town that we have met, the people that we have come across, are very gracious, very gospel-driven, very interesting people. And it just so happens that all properties are held indeed by the denomination. And they have a couple of properties uptown that are struggling and have been struggling for since your kids were born. That's the truth of it. So we're pursuing a, 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 a partnership that might allow us to put a footprint up in the 04. And when I say 04... I mean, pull out a map and point right to the middle. That's exactly what we're talking about. So we're giddy. We're excited. It's moving slower than we would hope. We're the quarter-mile thoroughbreds in the game, and they're going to plow it through, and they're going to get there. They're going to go long distance, and we're going to race. And I think it feels like a match made in heaven, which, as you know, because you're sitting next to your match made in heaven, takes tremendous work. It doesn't mean it's fast, right? Everybody leans over. Oh, honey. You're my match made in heaven. But you get what I'm saying. It feels like a divine, it feels like the right thing, but it's going to take a while. But I just say that to say the ground underneath us is moving, right? There's a wind at our back. God is doing something really interesting, and there's a possible relocation for us up into the heart, I think, of, of, of a place that we couldn't get to if God doesn't open that door. So anyway, I think that's exciting. I'm kind of having these 50,000 foot view thoughts as we've been gone for three weeks, two weeks away, and then one week serving uh, in, in Restore Weekend. But it ought not surprise us, I was thinking of this this week, that partnership is the way forward for us. That not building, not raising money, not starting something brand new, but it shouldn't surprise us that that, that metaphor of partnership is what's probably going to move us forward. Why do I say that? That's how the kingdom works. You know, that's how the kingdom works. We're not doing anything new. Look around. This isn't really even all that innovative. But our heart is to partner with what God is already doing in Austin. 
the bishop of the UMC of this region asked me, what would be your vision for that church? And I said, simply to have a place to springboard and join God in what he's doing in Austin. Not invite Austin to come to our new location. Not really interested in that. That's not all that intriguing. What's interesting is to be right near the heartbeat and continue to pump life out into what God's already doing. The good news is we don't have to make him do anything. God loves Austin, and he's moving among the people of Austin. So that's, the, that's something interesting. So anyway, um, that was an intro. That was, my, that was my page and a half intro. I give myself permission for long intros because the hat makers. That's, how, that's why. It's really, really good to be back. Mostly Jen, not Brandon. Mostly Jen. It's really good to be back. We pulled off the ultimate road trip vacation, you guys. I would never recommend you try this. Don't do this at home, right? But we've been dreaming about taking a road trip through all the old areas where we grew up and where we used to live as a young married couple. Uh, We've been dreaming about this for several years. Um, First, we didn't have a vehicle that we could trust because when you take on a Mexican highway, you better be absolutely sure those Michelins are brand new and that car has everything set, you know, and that's never been the situation until recently. Um, but but you, if you don't know this about us, um, I spent a lot of my young years there, and the first three years of our marriage we were there. Uh, and so getting our kids back in that space was kind of a dream come true. We wanted to wait until they were old enough to get it. How many of my kids are here? Oh, shoot, there's two of you here. Until they were old enough to really catch it. You see, the, the background canvas behind the paint of our lives has always been Mexico, and I can't explain that, except that that's always been the case for us. And so it's really interesting for our kids to see for the first time, what is this thing that lurks behind everything else? So it was a really, really good time. Um, 25 years ago, we lived there. And the kids who were in our youth group are now leading churches of 10,000. And it's interesting when you go back in that space, every other time in the last 20 years that we've been back, I've secretly nursed the hope that they would invite me back. And except this time, something was very different this time. Something was just totally settled in us. Maybe it's 40s. Maybe it's, I haven't figured anything out. Maybe I'm just getting old, Chris. That's probably the the secret. I got all these secrets to life. Yeah, you're 40, that's why. But it was very different. You know, some seasons of your life have weight on your soul because they're just so stinking long. And other seasons have this inexplicable heft And it's almost as if things are accelerated on the fringes of your life and you're in that stretch zone and everything just, that was those three years for us. Good times. But here's what I noticed about me. For the first time ever, I'm completely content doing what I'm doing, where I'm doing it, and with whom I'm doing it. And so all that to say, it is super, super good to be back. You know, maybe it's Austin. Maybe that's why we're settled. Maybe it's being 44. Maybe it's Trey. That's possibly. could be working with Trey. But it's definitely Austin New Church. It's definitely this, this, this fascinating little church on the south side of Austin. It's got our attention. And so I've listened to Brandon and Jen's uh, sermons from the last couple of weeks. Good stuff, really good stuff. We're very lucky to have this on tap all the time. In fact, sometimes I wonder if we're, we need to be defibrillated into understanding that people buy tickets to go see them, and we get them on tap. It's just there in your living room. And so... Grateful for that. And, and I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. Um, this is me. This is the whole 30 me. I'm hyper-focused, and I'm, I'm not on any sugar. Y'all don't even know. Like, last night at 11, we were coming back from a Cory Morrow concert, and I'm jacked up on two Topo Chicos. I could have written my sermon last night. I'm usually asleep from the shoulders up by 8.15, right? No, let's talk whole 30 later, right, Tana? I'm feeling super, 
So I'm going somewhere with this, but here's, here's, here's what I'm thinking. There's something, you gotta come to grips with this about ANC. There's something global about this little local thing. We, I say this a lot. The hat makers probably don't say it because, you know, who wants to talk about how cute their kid is? This is their baby. But let me tell you what I know. What happens here goes around the country and tickles what's going on around in very large and other places. There's this weird sense in which, yeah, it's just Bailey, but it's not just Bailey. It's never just Bailey. There's things going on here that are touching people in other places. Look at the metrics on our podcasts. There's 150, 200, 250 of us here. There's often four and 5,000 downloads of a podcast uh, of our weekend. So there's something interesting going on, and this has a connection to the book of Galatians for me. Galatians is the letter that Paul writes that is not granular in its contextual application. What do I mean by that? He's not writing just to one set of people in one church. Paul is writing to a region of churches, and so his perspective is different, and it matters. That's what, that's what reminds me a little bit of AC, of ANC. I'm willing to bet, this is just a theory, we can't know, but I'm willing to bet that Paul probably had no idea that what he committed to parchment would be read by believers for all times and all places, forever and ever, amen, as the word of God. It's probably pretty, I can't imagine he might have known that. But here's what I do know. When he wrote Galatians, it was designed to circulate. And the instructions were, read it and pass it on. Forward that email, essentially the instructions. And so there's something about the big C church that we have to get our hands around here. You know, it's ironic that freedom of all things would be something that we could lose so easily, right? In fact, I would suggest if a good reading of Galatians does anything, it will tell you that freedom is almost impossible to keep. And Paul is writing into that situation. We didn't earn it, you see. We, if we did, we could understand it. We don't deserve it. Oh, if we just deserved it, then we would know why. But freedom is more elusive than that. It has nothing to do with what we do or what we don't do. None of that disqualifies us from having it. Paul would go on to say, in his words, this is the free gift of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, and nothing can be added to this. It's not something that we ought to give away. In fact, we ought to put it up for safekeeping, which in Texas means you're gun safe, but we ought to lock it away. It shouldn't be something that we should willingly yield to others with competing and new and fresh ideas. But as we know, this is what's going on in Galatians. So we've been hovering over this message for a month already. We've been known to take 12 years to get through a book, you know, of a gospel. So it's nothing new that we're kind of hovering. But we've been hovering over this for a while, drifting back and forth. And in fact, we've been tickling, you know, chapters 2 and 3 and spoonfuls of chapters 5 and 6. And what I have planned for us today is maybe the result of being away with my family for two weeks. But I've been locked and loaded on a single phrase just a single phrase. I don't like to generally preach this way. I think you've got to blow the size out to understand what's going on here. But there's a single sentence that's been percolating in my brain for the last couple of weeks. So let's read. And in fact, if the words are on the screen, I like the sound of us reading together. Let's read this together. This is Galatians 4, 8 through 11. Can you even see that? If you can see that, you must be 20. If you can't, just kind of go... Let's read that together. Formerly... When you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Keep reading, keep reading.
Okay, let's pray very briefly. Holy Spirit, enlighten your word and open our hearts this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. You can turn the lights back on or else it's going to feel like Hillsong. <laughs> Just a few thoughts, and then I'm going to drill down on a particular phrase here. It's possible, you know, it's possible to be enslaved to bad thinking. Paul writes to an ancient world that understood slavery, perhaps not the evil that we in America have learned to tolerate, because the, the slavery that we know is based on something totally, totally out of the person's control, the level of melanin or melatonin in their skin. But Paul understood slavery, and he writes to a church that is not being enslaved by anyone who's chaining them up and making them work, but ideologies can be slave drivers. It's fascinating to me how this is. We can be held captive, and these are Paul's words, by miserable forces, miserable, degrading forces, sad slave drivers that, listen to me, will never be content, no matter how devout, slave drivers that will never have their fill of your sweat and toil to please God. This is an ideology that Paul is addressing. He calls them dark principles, if you look at a different uh, translation. These are one and the same, I would suggest, with religious structures that often, ironically, become the antichrist to the message of the gospel. The structures, and how would, I, how would I categorize a religious structure? Well, anything that teaches you that if you do this, you get God's pleasure. Every religion in the world attempts to do that by some sort of predictable, formulaic, add one and two and you get three. It's interesting how those things can come to enslave us and literally drive us until we're ready to break. You know, religion, according to Paul in this passage, is weak, and it's miserable when it's compared to the work of Christ. That's the message of Galatians. We've heard it four ways already. That aside, I want to focus on this one phrase. Paul writes, but now that you know God, or rather, are known by God, let that question seep into your soul. Ask that question of us. Ask that question of yourself. Are you someone who knows God? Or are you someone who, God, who is known by God? You might say, well, I'm a math major. There's no difference. Those are just words. Listen, hang with me. There's a difference. Are you someone who sees themselves as one who knows God? Or do you see yourself as one who is known by God? What does Paul mean here? Let's just give some feedback. What do you think Paul means in this phrase? He writes, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, what do you think he means? Some brave soul. I'm perfectly okay with silence. I don't get enough of it in my life. I'll just enjoy it for a minute if you don't mind. What's that? Who is the one pursuing? Okay. To be known is to be loved. Very good. I'm sorry, say it again. In communion with. So to be known by God is to be in communion with God? What would then to know God be? Just to have, man, y'all are already there. All right, band, come on up. Did you read my notes? Anything else you want to add to that? What do you think Paul is up to? It's a pretty safe assumption that Paul's not wasting words on parchment. He's not just writing things. It's probably like... I don't trust people who say they can tell you what Paul was thinking, because I don't think that's super safe. But I, I do think it's safe to say that there's probably some meaning here. 
Why would an author who's putting this down, why would he write it wrong and then write it right? Why would he say those who know God, actually, I mean those who are known by God, why would he do that? To clarify? Anybody else's opinion? Any literary critics in here? To create contrast, perhaps? That's good. That's good. Anyone else? Say it again. Two different. So is it possible that Paul is describing two different mentalities here? Is that possible? Are you guys seeing that? Getting a few heads shaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lizanne. Okay. Right. Right. Okay, for Aaron Bunker, my friend, who will be listening to this on podcast, who constantly berates us for not repeating the question because you can't hear it, Lizanne is saying to be known by God is different because God knows everything than to know God, right? That's not a great summary of what you said, but that's the best I can do. Basically what you said. The thing is, Lizanne, is you, you're already on page five. We're on page two. So you're going where, so thank you. Yes, absolutely. I think it's intentional, okay? I think Paul leaves it there on purpose. Obviously, it would be a fool's game to try to get inside his mind, and I would never suggest that that's the safe way to go, but I think it's safe to say that it mattered. For some reason, it mattered. And to your point, um, I think that there's something of an identification of two ways of looking at the world, perhaps, going on here, right? Here's your first option. We are people who understand ourselves to be those who know God. Option two, we are people who understand that we are known by God, and those are different. Now, I believe God obviously knows all people. In fact, to say that and to look at the scope of human history is to make some deep and profound theological assumptions, and here's what they are. I don't believe people have ever existed in any place, anywhere throughout history that God was not active in seeking those people out. I don't believe it's safe to say there was any group of people, no matter how they fall in the thread of Western civilization, that, oh, oops, they couldn't have heard the preaching the way you and I heard it, so therefore they're here to stoke the flames of hell. And I wish that wasn't a direct quote from systematic theology. I don't think it's safe to say, well, there are people who will never, but here's the catch. God knows all. God knows everyone everywhere He has always known the hearts of men, the hearts of mankind. The different assumption, though, is that we know God. God knows all, period, but what about us? Do we know him? Do we act like we know him? You know where I'm going. People who see themselves primarily as people who know God tend to be very different than those who understand themselves as those who God knows. I think of the two men standing in the marketplace in Luke, Luke 18. One of them stands and is making noise, drawing attention, running off the list of ways that he pleases God, and O happens to point to the other man in the shadows whose head is on his chest, who's beating his breast, saying, I'm not worthy. The man in the other corner in the light with the trumpets and the cymbals is saying, thank you, God, that I am not like him. And which of those two men thought they knew God? But which of them went home justified according to Jesus in that story? I think of Psalms 139, probably some of the best poetry ever penned. We've got ideas that are larger than life there. But there's this 
This word that the psalmist uses, this idea that we were knit together in our mother's womb, meaning before we could actively choose any sort of knowledge, God knew the component parts of who we were. He knew the unknowable parts. I think of John uh, chapter 2, and the beloved apostle, uh, John himself, who writes that Jesus entrusted himself to people to show them the signs and miracles, but he knew their hearts and knew that they were deceived and they were looking to trap him. He knew the hearts of men. I think specifically one of my favorite little stories of when Jesus is gathering his team to himself, his executive team, right? He's building his elder board and he calls one named Nathaniel and the very first words out of Jesus' mouth were, here is one in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel pops off, well, how could you possibly know? Jesus knew God knows us, but that is not the same as when we make this very concrete claim that we know God. Ask yourself again, do do I know God or am I known by God? Because here's the thing, those who are certain that they know God tend to speak on his behalf whenever they can. It's a natural and it's an ancient progression and we all do this, but to know him is to know what he wants, right? Is to make extensions of, if it's true for me, it's true for all. To know God is to know what he wants, is to know what he doesn't like, is to know who's out, and is to know who's in. Let me tell you why this is all on the front burner of my mind these days. I started telling you today about our trip through Mexico. We drove nearly 2,000 miles. We hauled right down the middle of Cocaine Alley, y'all. We did everything you're not supposed to do. We saw everything. But that country, in my own sort of historical, theological framework, is the modern-day clash of two very opposing theologies. So hang on, we're going to do a little history today. I know it's summer. Hang on with me. I'm actually a very passionate historian of the world, the old world and the new world, as they clash in the, in the middle Americas, which would be central Mexico to you, in the early 1500s. I have a lifetime of firsthand observations of the cultural fruit that has come out of that clash. I've read hundreds and hundreds of pages that have been finally compiled in the Nahuatl language, which is the language of the Aztecs, translated into Spanish and then on into English, that tell the story of the conquest, the native version. You see, we know the story is told by the victor. That's how history books are written. Whoever ends up on top writes the story, and then forever and ever, until the voice of the indigenous uh, vanquished ones, would be the historical term, finally finds its way out. See, the history of the New World is told through the lens of whoever had the biggest sword and was wielding the greatest number of biological weapons on their body and was killing off masses through the overlap. Like all history, that's how that works. But here's the catch. The clash of the Spaniard and the indigenous mindset in the New World were two very different theologies, and here's how they went. The Spaniard understands himself as the representative of the crown, which is the representative of the cross, which is the church. And see, if God created all, he gave it to his son, and his son bequeathed it to the church. And if the church, through this divine right of kings, shares it with the state, then the divinely empowered state commissions people to go around the globe, and whatever they touch is therefore belongs to God. You get the, you get the, the theological assumption. You get what I'm talking about. It just so happens that the people that they first encounter have a very different view of how God exists in the world and what he wants of men. And these were the words, if I could take you back in the original Nahuatl language, they call them the Montezuma Discourses, where Moctezuma is trying to understand the theology of these white men 
clad in armor, riding large deer because they didn't have horses. And here's how it went. We come on behalf of the cross and the king, and this belongs to the church, and therefore we will have it all, and unless you convert, you are going to be dispossessed. And the native mind is trying to get their head around it, and the, event, the, the, the card they eventually play is this. It's been so many years since our people came across the sea, and since you just got here, maybe you know something we don't. And so that inner hospitality that you and I now continue to experience when you do your five-star resort in Cancun, that inner hospitality that welcomes the steel edge of the sword deep into the heart says it demurs. And you see, here's the difference. One of them spoke with concrete certainty on behalf of what God wanted, and one of them was not sure. And what is the story to this day? Sorry for the politics, but the conquest continues. It's economic. It's cultural. It's linguistic. It's no less intense. Sorry for those reflections. That's been the milieu of my head for the last three weeks. But it's fascinating to me what happens when you put into one ring two people with different ideas about who knows God and who doesn't. Because if you know God, it's so easy to extrapolate and to normalize your assumptions and say, if you're outside even slightly of my story, then you don't know God. And yet I ask you, who can possibly know God in that sense? Paul writes this interesting sentence with a hyphen in the middle, basically illuminating these two ideas. You're the people, how could you lose your freedom? You're the people who know God. Actually, you're the people who are known by God. Resident in the thinking of people in power is this thing, is this idea. If God made it, and God gave it to us, then I could speak on his behalf. And let me just tell you, if you could heap together in one mass every single thing that repels the unlooking world from the gospel, it has something to do with that. People speaking with certainty on behalf of things that they cannot know. Try me. Take a read through history. You pick your favorite chapter. Take whatever part of human history or world history or Western Civ or non-Western Civ you want and use this framework. I'm telling you, somebody was certain and somebody wasn't. Here's my point for us today in case you're bored to tears with history, which half of you I know are. What sort of people are we? Are we those who God knows Or are we those who know God? How do we approach others who are seeking to live right as we are, but come up with something a little different than our way of doing it? How are we living in tension with those people? This is really a conversation about posture. What is our posture towards others? Towards other cultures? Towards other ways of doing church here in Travis County. What's our posture? See, the Galatians were a people who understood both, that they were known by God and that they, oh, well, we know, we know God. We know what God wants. They were both, which is why Paul writes this letter. They knew that somehow, in an undeserved way, they had caught the glimpse of God and that he had given them freedom that they couldn't even imagine, and yet they traded it up 
when the first operating system upgrade came down the phone, they just clicked, yep, let's upgrade, let's go back. They knew both. And I'm so thankful that we don't do what the Galatians do. So thankful we're all over that, right? We've outgrown that. Listen, let me deflate your jumpy house if you're new to ANC. Let me just, just put a hole right in the side of it. We aren't the only church in Austin. In fact, we aren't even the best church in Austin. And you think I'm saying that's not a gimmick. I mean this. We're not even the best church in Austin. And just like the Celtic believers gathered in the southern part of Italy, which was the Galatian region to which Paul wrote, we are capable of walking among the world that God is active in with this working assumption that we are known by a God who compels us forward, and yet we can never make the claim that we fully, exhaustively know God. It just doesn't work that way. People who think they know God write books about what they know, and the next thing you know, they've got a formula. Pretty soon they speak authoritatively about what God chooses. Now hang on here. And they're also willing to speak authoritatively about what God chooses not to choose. How we get there, I will never know. I wish I was joking, but you know, this ideology by its signatures, what are they? Judgment, shame, arrogance gives birth to fundamentalism and legalism, elitism. You can tell it by its smell, what that is. It's tribalism. You see, here's my conviction. We are people, we are known by God, but nowhere in our knowledge of his personal dealings with us is there any resident permission to say, if it's not true for us, it's not true for anyone else. Nowhere in our understanding, in our overlap with God in our lives, nowhere in the ways that he has met us as broken people and he's given us permission to live, nowhere in the breath that he has breathed into our lungs in the darkest time of our lives, nowhere is there permission to say this is all God is ever gonna do. Nowhere, it's not there. It's not there. And so we hover and we tilt and we walk this line and Paul says, oh, you people who know God, rather, who are known by God. You see, one is a humble posture and one tries to put it in a capsule. One is an open-handed posture that walks among the people of the earth and says, what is God up to here? And the other is institutionalism. And it's got rules and it's got consequences if you cross the line. One of them is the way to age and one of them is not. And Paul just simply in one perfect phrase says those two things. You see, here's the catch. We're going to end here. There is no full reveal of what God wants from mankind. Nobody gets to write the final word. Nobody gets to say the last sentence. Nobody gets to say this is all that God asks of mankind. Everywhere anyone has ever taken a breath, God has moved in their direction. How do we know this to be true? Because we push everything through the grid of Jesus Christ. What we know to be true about God, we know through Jesus Christ, and he went all the wrong places. He opened all the wrong doors, and he welcomed all the wrong people in. And this is what we know to be true about God. We walk with a revelation of God that has been given to us. It has saved our soul, but it is not the full reveal. We are not people who know God in any sense that's exhaustive. We are known by a God who calls himself love and who is ever moving in our direction. And that makes all the difference in the world.
You know this because we've already covered this. I'm going to wrap with this. Paul called that other state of mind bewitched. Who has bewitched you, Galatian church? Who has talked you back into systems when I have preached to you the message of freedom and permission? We ought to be unwilling to go back to that place. And I think that's the message. And I don't know if it applies to you, but I think it applies to me. I've been walking with God my entire life, and yet I can barely say I know him. Why? Because what I know to be true today was not what I knew before. It's changing, y'all. It's moving. It's moving in a direction, and it's not a funnel upside down. It's moving in a different direction. Nicole Nordeman's lyrics on her record. I only listen to one Christian record. I'm really, I'm bad that way. I OD'd on Christian music 25 years ago. But one record has cut through the noise this week for me, and it's Nicole Nordeman's new record, and there are so many little phrases. And I can't remember the one I was just going to quote. Anyway, I recommend it. It's amazing. Her cover of Beautiful Day, you too, get it. But here's the catch. God is always moving towards us, but he's never going to give us the full operator's manual. And you know why he doesn't? Somebody tell me why he doesn't. Anyone? Maybe we can't handle it. Why else? He wants us to come to him. If we had the full reveal, there would be no need to go back, would there? There would be no need to lean. There would be no darkness. There would be no mystery. There would be no step into the, I hope, God, you're going to meet me in this place. I'm going to do this in faith. There would be none of that. We would have the whole deal. You know what we call that in theology? We call that systematic theology, and it pretends to have it all bolted down. Everything's nailed down, bolted down. Nothing moves. All we have to do is understand it, and I just want to push back that on that and say there's no room for mystery in that. That's not the invitation. So why don't you join, with your, join me on your feet this morning? I just want that idea to just kind of roll over us. The greatest news you will ever hear is that you are known by God. Every move, every challenge, every setback, every victory, every defeat, it's all known by God. But here's a warning. That doesn't mean we know all there is to know. We're going in a direction. God is revealing himself. This church is on the trail of something amazing. And we're just one way to get it done. We're not the only, we're not the best, we're not the shiniest. But we want to do it with an open and a gracious heart to what God is doing in Austin. Pray with me.